from WXOJLP Northampton, 103.3 FM, your Valley Free Radio Station. Welcome. I'm Warren Odestulet, and this is A Baha'i Perspective. A Baha'i Perspective is a radio program of biographical interviews of people who have either chosen the Baha'i faith as a way of life or who have a relationship with the Baha'i faith. If you want information specifically on the Baha'i faith, you're welcome to visit the website www.baha'i.org. That's B-A-H-A-I dot O-R-G. Or you can call the toll-free number 1-800-22-UNITE. Today, I'm playing a telephone interview with Christina Frith-Quinn, a Baha'i musical artist whose CDs include Crimson Robe and He is the Healer. I started the interview by asking Christina where she grew up and what was it like growing up there. Well, I grew up in a combination of Bermuda, the island of Bermuda, and New York City. A wonderful combination because my parents were artists, and so I got to experience kind of the best cultural aspects of New York through my parents' love of art, the beauty and peacefulness and tranquility of Bermuda, which was always healing and grounding and reminding of a a slower rhythm of life. So I feel very grateful for that combination. And how much time did you spend in Bermuda versus New York? Feels like half and half because I was always in school in New York, and whenever I wasn't in school, I was in Bermuda, and so my time in Bermuda was very... very full of nature activities, whereas I was in school in New York, so I didn't necessarily experience New York in the full-bodied way that I experienced Bermuda. So Bermuda was always kind of safe home, Mm -hmm. and New York was always kind of active, cultural home. So your parents would spend the time with you when you were in New York going to school and then spend time with you in Bermuda when you had time off from school? Yeah, exactly. My parents are both from Bermuda. My father went to school in Boston and went immediately to work at Random House. One of his buddy's parents were the founders of Random House, and so thankfully he had a job right out of college editing with Dr. Zeus, of all people. So we lived in New York. My parents moved to New York and had three children, and we lived there and schooled there. But the largest part of our family remained in Bermuda, grandparents, aunts, uncles, cousins, and friends. And so we would always return to to our family to reconnect and be together. Tell me about school in New York. School is a loaded topic for me right now. I could tell you about my school experience, but it will definitely be shared through a more mature filter of how I'm reflecting on the effect of that experience in me now. My parents chose schools carefully for us. We were very, very fortunate enough, or my father worked very, very hard so that he could send us to private, more artistically progressive schools. So compared to many, I think my school experience was very rich and diverse and wonderful, arts-based education, a great regard for all the arts in these schools that all three of us went to. 
So in one way, I could say it was wonderful compared to what it could have been. On the other hand, I, I think the design of school in general is at such an immature stage that when I reflect on how it should have been or could have been or hopefully someday will be, I feel very sad at how unnurturing and unhealthy and unnatural an environment it really is for children in general and was for me because I was such an unbelievably sensitive, emotionally feeling, caring person. It was just all too much. It was sort of a cacophony of of, of chaos and, and not the best design for me, let's say. How would you envision school being different if you could have it your way? I'm really searching right now in this area as I, I try to find the best education for my own two children. I would say the first most important thing that would need to be the foundation of school is the knowledge in the educators that each child is an extraordinary being with extraordinary capacities and potentials. Not the idea of extraordinary, but truly extraordinary. There must be a quality of intimacy and love and true care for each child in order for the innate gifts to develop and be born in them and for the child to grow and unfold in a way where they feel they're involved not only in something meaningful, but in something that's actually coming out of them from their very hearts or very understanding or their very striving or searching, and that it's important that the world needs it. It needs what they're searching for and finding, and that it's respected and honored. I know it's a complicated issue, but Mm -hmm. I feel very strongly that the spirit of relationship has all but been crushed in schools and that it's become this kind of overbearing machine that misses the beauty of relationship that can actually nurture masses of amazing people into amazing contributors to humanity and to to meaning here on earth. The argument could be raised, the issue of spirituality in school. Well, whose spirituality? You know, mm-hmm. well, then, then which spirituality would we teach? And ironically, if you go to the heart or essence of any of the spiritual paths, they'll all be calling us to the same place, which is a place of loving each other, developing virtuous qualities that are Again, not ideas of virtuous qualities in our culture nowadays. We almost make fun of or look down on people who are quote-unquote virtuous, puritanical, or um, above, you know, thinking of themselves above you know, the rest of humanity. And what I'm really speaking about is that authentic state of virtue where every human being wants to be related to something good. They want to be doing the right thing in the right place at the right time. They want to be loving. All of these qualities are spiritual qualities and do not have to be named as being associated with one particular path. And in the, in the instance of the public schools, it doesn't even have to be related to 
religion, although it's very sad that we've come to a place where the word religion is almost, you know, a bad word in public schools. <laughs> what true religion is really doing is inviting us to the best part of ourselves, the best parts of who we truly are, the best ways that we can possibly be. This is something I've given a lot of thought to, but still learning and searching and finding and trying to understand more deeply into the fabric of what's already been woven, part of the tapestry that really needs to kind of be dismantled and rewoven in a spirit of vision, a vision of beauty and unity and wisdom. And Well, how old are your kids? <laughs> Julia just turned 13, mm-hmm. and my son Gabriel is 10. I'm assuming they're going to school. They have been in and out of schools that are related to the Waldorf Methods, a school that does have some foundational qualities of appreciation for the art and the artistic being and the spiritual being. They've also had an experience in in public school, which was more of a charter school, so there can be more room in terms of philosophy and so forth, but it's still overseen and funded by the public school system, so there's still that clamp down on no quote-unquote spirituality, and and it just kind of creates an air of confusion in the parents who really would like their children to be held in a spiritual light of appreciation. (laughs) It's hard to have compulsory education, not be able to afford a private school of any religious denomination, to have to send your child to a public school to be devoted to your spiritual path and to be told that there can be none of that in their schooling, and this is a place where they will be for hours and hours of many days, of many months, of many years. The spiritual part of us is such an integral part of who we are, and it's completely not addressed. Encouraged, enhanced, nurtured. Nurtured is what I was thinking of, exactly. So it's like there's a big piece of us that's not being dealt with, for most of the day when, when we're, we're in school. Yeah. Not only a big piece of us, but a crucial piece of us. Mm-hmm. The, the part that really holds the treasures of wisdom and vision to heal the ills of humanity and to find a true meaningful path that relates to all other beings on this whole world. You're right. I mean, it's the fundamental part of who we are. And all we're dealing with is the material aspect of who we are, which is not the fundamental piece of who we are. And this is a weighty subject. Because we're so inundated with input from media and from an agenda, I couldn't even really articulate what the agenda is because it's complicated and it's multi-leveled. But a part of the agenda to raise consumers who believe that they're not enough in who they are and that their whole identity must be formed around what they acquire and how they act in relation to who they think they're supposed to be. Our priorities have been so displaced, and it's happened in enough generations to the point where we don't even really know it's happening. It's become embedded in a cultural way, so it would almost seem not only natural, but the purpose of life 
to be able to act a certain way in life so that we can be seen a certain way, so that we can be who we've been told we're supposed to be. And if we can just get this car and this house and this stuff and this jewelry, then we will have attained what we believe we need to attain in order to have meaning or to be seen in a certain way so that we can feel okay about ourselves because we've already been told that we're not okay. We're, we're not okay in so many ways, and women are inundated with this stuff. I heard a great quote recently. I can't credit the person who made it up because it's just kind of out there, but it was a recommendation. Don't read beauty magazines. They'll only make you feel ugly. It's ironic to see these teenagers flipping through pages of these quote-unquote beauty magazines And none of them are saying, you are beautiful just as you are. Mm -hmm. You have all these hidden gems in your heart and soul that one day will bloom and bring the earth and the world of humanity so much happiness and joy. Thank goodness for you that you are here because there is no one else like you, beautiful you. Instead, they're flipping through these pages, looking at the hairstyles and looking at the clothing and the jewelry and drinking it in as these vulnerable, beautiful, innocent children already learning that this is what they must adhere to in order to be worth anything in this world. And that is a tremendous tragedy I was recently reflecting on how many women, and this has gone on for generations now, this is not just new, but it's something we have to wake up to. I'm astounded at how many women, when they hit menopause and their hormones go all crazy, that something cracks inside, something breaks. It's like the shell, the facade the, the thing that they have been holding up for so many years that they have been taught that they need to hold up, the mask that makes them somebody, just shatters because they don't have the strength anymore. They're tired, you know, and their their bodies are getting tired. And thank God for this because how many women do you know who after going through menopause say, I'm a painter. I, <laughs> I never knew I could paint. <laughs> Look, I just painted 20 paintings, and they're actually kind of beautiful. (laughs) Likewise, how many men do you know hit a certain point in their life, and they just crack all of the striving and the working that they've been doing for so many years to support the family, to get the car, to make the house payment, or the, the man who hasn't been able to do that, and doesn't have the car, and doesn't have the house, and doesn't have any money in the bank, all of a sudden, the facade, the mask, cracks. It comes crumbling down. He feels like a total failure, and now he has to search. He has to dive in deeper and say, what am I really doing here? Who am I really? Have I done anything of meaning? Okay, wait, maybe it's not too late. Maybe it's not really about the car and the house and the, and the looking like this and the talking like the guys. Maybe it's really about who I truly am, which is a being with feelings and a life in my heart and my soul and questions and longings and searchings towards something that's more mysterious, something that nobody taught me in school, 
something that the commercials aren't advertising or inviting me to. On the contrary, it's something that feels like truly who I am, and I want to be connected to that now. Imagine if that started younger. You're a musical artist, and I want to talk a little bit about that with you. Was a music a part of you while you were growing up? Yes. I grew up with a father, primarily, who has such an incredible love for music. And, of course, we grew up with a record player, a turntable, and he just had albums and albums and albums of all these wonderful artists like Joni Mitchell and Simon and Garfunkel and Cat Stevens and Joan Baez and Judy Collins and I and Beatles, of course. I spent most of my free time listening to music and singing along and learning the songs and, and dancing to them and so forth. At around the age of 12, I think it was, I was given a guitar. It may have been, actually, I may have been a little bit younger, maybe 11. I think it may have been my aunt, Lexi, and she taught me a few chords, and within a number of months, I was writing songs. Interestingly enough, right at that time, and that time of my life is is rather a blur, but I do know factually that right in that same time, my parents split, and my whole world fell apart. Somehow, the thread of light that kept me from just dying in my own heart and soul was connected to music. And I can't even explain what that means. It's more of, more of an intuitive sense. I knew that there was a thread of light or safety that was connecting to me, even though I felt like I was floating in lost, dark space. And that the music that I played and sang was connected to that thread of light. And that's actually, I think, the first time I've ever shared that out loud or or even had the understanding of that. And so I began writing songs at the age of 12 and found great healing in being able to write the stories of my heart and my soul just with these few chords that I knew. As I sang... It was connected to such a deep well of feeling in me that it was incredibly healing. It's remained so through all these years of my life. The music that I write and sing is almost always connected to something relating to healing. And most of the songs that I've ever written have been born after incredible challenge or difficulties or painful passages. And I had a kind of running joke with God, but of course it was with myself. At times I would say, oh God, must I go through these excruciatingly painful challenges in order to give birth to a new song? And Mm. inevitably the answer that would spring forth was, yes. (laughs) (laughs) I've also written songs out of other places. Interestingly, the song that's written is oftentimes the medicine for the challenge that I'm going through. So I always feel like they're these little gifts. I'm trying to move into a stage in my life where I can just sit down and write a song, but (laughs) (laughs) I haven't quite gotten there yet. (laughs) So, Christina, how is it that you ran into the Baha'i Faith? These things are always so multi-leveled. 
when I was about five years old, I remember standing in the street in Brooklyn. There weren't very many cars that came down that street. And I remember standing right in the middle of the street and looking up to the sky. And, and I didn't have religion in my house growing up. My parents were not religious, and they didn't speak of God. And if I asked them about God, there was never really an understanding or an explanation I could sink my teeth into. And I think my mother may have even said, there's no God. So I knew that my relationship with God was going to be private, and I would just have to kind of figure it out for myself. I'm very young when I knew this, and I hear that's common among five-year-olds. But I remember standing in the street in Brooklyn, in New, in New York, and reflecting on all these people that I see in my neighborhood, like the, the monks, the Muslims, with their long white robes and their, their white head coverings, and the Sikhs, and the Orthodox Jews, and the nuns in their full habit and the Buddhists in their, their long golden robes. Everything, everything you, you could imagine seeing, you would see in New York. It's this wonderful land of diversity. And here these people were wearing their religion on their person. And I always loved that. I loved it. It was compelling to me. I loved that somebody would be so devoted to something that you would see it in how they dressed and how they walked. And I remember standing in that street saying, they're all going to the same place. I wonder why they're not all hanging out together. That was a very poignant moment for me in my life because I understood something about them that I thought that maybe they didn't even understand. When I was in my early 20s, I was investigating elements of all the different religions in relation to their more mystical paths, like the Sufi tradition of Islam that comes out of the Muslim faith and the Kabbalistic teachings that come out of the Jewish faith, and so on and so forth. I was very curious about the more mystical sides of things, the things that seemed to have elements that were more living and not fixed. And I met a fellow who one day invited me to become a Jew. He said, why don't you just become a Jew? You're, you're obviously so into it. You must be Jewish. And for the first time in my life, out loud, I had a conversation about religion with somebody and shared with him that I believed that all the religions were one in essence and that I couldn't become one of them because then it would put me outside of another. And so I chose to just see myself as all of them or none of them and just be, in essence, what I believed. And he said, oh, you sound like a Baha'i. That's what the Baha'is believe. And you should go to Haifa, because that's where their holy land is. And he had majored in religion at Northwestern, and he started telling me all these things about the Baha'i faith, and I said, well, you know, you can call me that if you like. That's fine. I, I, I don't feel a need to call myself anything at this point. I was very concerned about becoming something because that would mean that I was in something and you were out of it, in other words. Mm -hmm. And I was hypersensitive to that concept. A few years went by, not many, actually, maybe even one and a half or two. And my grandmother called me from Bermuda and said, Christina, I've entered you into a contest, a singing contest, to sing on the next Board of Tourism video for Bermuda. Is that okay? And I said, Oh, 
sure, <laughs> that's fine. And she said, okay, well, you have to videotape yourself singing a song and send it to me right away. And so I, I promptly did that and received a telephone call from someone else saying, hello, we'd like you to come and sing on the Board of Tourism video for Bermuda. And so I got my ticket and went down to stay with my grandmother, um, which was very nice for me, and went down to the recording studio to meet the people who I would be recording the song for the video with. And right upon meeting this very first person, I was struck by the light of his personage. Now, at this point, I had already spent a lot of time in meditation retreats and hanging out with spiritual teachers and yogis and yoga practicers and new agey people and people whose eyes were all big and shiny and their palms were up to the sky and, you know, really loving beings. And that was wonderful. But there was something very different about this man. And it was so compelling to me that I watched him like I was watching a new kind of creature, (laughs) a new kind of being. And because I was so devoted to my spiritual path at this point, I was very, very curious to know what was going on with him. But I didn't say anything at that point. That's sort of a personal, intimate place to go. And at that point, because my own spiritual path was so private, I honored it so deeply, I didn't want it to be a casual conversation, and I didn't want to put him on the spot. So I learned the song, recorded it there in the studio, and all this time, this gentleman graciously served me. He brought me water. He asked me if if things were okay. Now, this was the fellow who was producing the music for this project. There are many nice people in the world, but oftentimes producers are very busy and full of their own task at hand. You don't really see them going around offering people glasses of water. That's for someone else to do. I continually remarked within my own mind how special this person was and how curious it was to me. Well, the recording session ended, and we shook hands and said farewell and gave our thanks and our appreciation and said goodbye. At some point, I had to speak with him. He left and went back to Canada. At some point, I had to speak with him on the phone. I can't even remember why, but I asked him if he would be coming to the filming, because then we had to film the video, if he would be coming back to Bermuda to film the video. And he said, no, he wasn't going to be able to because his schedule was just too busy. So I said, oh, okay. So I let go of it and was in Bermuda for another few weeks or so while they were getting the whole filming deal together. I arrived at this beautiful little park in Bermuda where there was a gorgeous white gazebo, and set inside was a youth orchestra with all their stringed instruments and a choir of about 40 or so people and a few of us who had been chosen to sing some of the lead lines in the song Standing in the Road Together. And who should appear on the set but this very gentleman? His name is Jack Lenz. He's a a Canadian producer, composer. Upon arriving on our little production set there, he came right over to the few of us who were singing these lead parts and asked us if everything was okay and if we needed a drink of water. Was everything working out well, and were we comfortable? And again, I just remarked to myself, this is unusual. But even more than that, there was a light 
almost like a glow about his being that was different from anything I had seen in someone before. We filmed the event, and the sky grew dark. It was nighttime, and it was time for all of us to go back to the hotel in Hamilton where we had all of our regular day clothes and our belongings, and we would collect those and then go on our separate ways. A few of us piled into a cab to go back to this hotel, and a voice inside my heart, my head, I I don't know exactly where it spoke from, but it was clear as a bell, as clear as a bell. And it said, go speak to him. And I looked outside of the cab window, and there was this gentleman, Jack Lenz, standing at the peak of this little hill, and he was surrounded by tens and tens of people, I don't know how many, maybe 50 or so people, and doing that sort of after-production schmoozy thing where, you know, here's my card and call me and I'll call you and <laughs> we'll have lunch and all that sort of thing. And I said to myself, you've got to be kidding me. He's, and he's surrounded by all these people. He's, he doesn't have time to talk about my little thing. And this clear voice said, go now. Do not hesitate. And with that, I put my handle on the cab door, I opened the door and got out and began walking toward him. Now, it was like a a scene out of a movie. The hill was backlit with these floodlights from the filming, and all I could see were the silhouettes of, of this crowd of people and this one tall, stately man standing right at the peak of the hill. And with every step I took, I kid you not, the crowd dispersed more and more until finally, when I stood at the very peak of the hill next to him, it was just the two of us standing there. And it was so astounding to me that I literally looked around as if to say, did you just see what I saw? (laughs) Is there something going on here? And in that moment, I felt great guidance happening and just, meekly said to him, I'm sure you're very busy, and I I don't know if you have any time, but if you do, I would love to ask you some questions. If you were free, perhaps we could have a meeting together. And he said, I would be delighted to. And completely surprised, we journeyed back to the hotel and sat down together, and I proceeded to ask him questions. I said, I don't know if you can even answer the question that I'm going to ask you, but there is a light about you. There is a graciousness and a directedness to your way that I have not experienced before. Not only do you have this quality of love and graciousness, but it's very pointed in a very particular direction. Do you even know what I'm talking about? And he smiled and very graciously sort of bowed his head and and looked down and said, well, yes, I think I might be able to explain what that might be. And he proceeded to share with me the reality of the Baha'i faith and that he was a Baha'i. I said, well, what what is the Baha'i faith? Why Why haven't I heard of the Baha'i faith? And he said, well, it's relatively new. And uh, many people haven't heard of it yet. And it believes that all the religions are one. And it believes in the equality of women and men. And it believes in 
the harmony of all religions and that humanity is one family. And, and he went on and on, and, and, and basically I went down it like a little checklist, and I said, well, I, I believe all those things. I'm, why haven't I heard of this before? And then I said, do you have any of the holy writings with you? Do, do the Baha'is have holy writings? And he said, oh, yes, many, many, many. And I said, do you have any of the writings with you? And he said, I do. I have a prayer book. And I said, could we, could we read one? Would you mind? And he said, not at all. And he took his prayer book out, and he read a prayer to me, and my heart soared. My whole being went into a state of peace and calm, and my mind understood a clarity and a truthfulness that was ringing through these words that was so grounded. I literally was transported to another place, and I said, now, why has that affected me so deeply? That just affected me so profoundly. I have read holy writings from all the different religions, and I do believe all the essential truths. Why has this one affected me so viscerally? And he said, well, it's because this is the revelation for this day, for the day in which we live. It is speaking to the level of maturity that our souls have come to. We are ready to hear this message, the Baha'i message. It is the most recent. And this was a huge missing piece for me, this idea of progressive revelation and that the manifestations of God, Buddha, Krishna, Muhammad, Zoroaster, Christ, the Bab, so on and so forth, Mm -hmm. that they have all come at different times in history, which I didn't know because I hadn't studied religious history. I thought maybe some of them could have been here at the same time. It was kind of a blur. And so this idea that each one was unfolding a chapter of an ever-unfolding revelation, it was like the missing shard in the crystal. It just kind of dropped in, and the light went on. And I said, okay, now I get it. That makes perfect sense that God would send these messengers to bring the next, more mature aspect of a revelation that is constantly inviting us higher and higher and deeper and closer to the beauty of this mysterious creator that has created us. And now the magic is to relate with people in the world in a way that reminds us that we have to keep striving toward the things that compel us. And the things that compel us are usually of a spiritual nature. They're usually wanting to be doing something meaningful on earth. They're usually to have a purpose, a meaningful purpose. They're usually to engage in a way that creates goodness and happiness and healing. Even people who have grown very cynical or very jaded, or, have, or who have gotten far away from those calls that their hearts make for them to come back to who they truly are. Even those people have these little nagling qualities that make them wonder. They wonder about God. They wonder about the mystery of life. They wonder what their purpose is. You know, you hear about people who, after 9-11, who don't believe in God, found themselves wandering into churches they were just so shaken to such a core level 
that all of a sudden they were feeling their core again. They were feeling their fragility. They were feeling that part of themselves that knows they're not alone and that they can't do everything alone. And here they found themselves sitting in churches, maybe for the first times in their lives, saying, okay, God, you know, I, I don't even know if you exist, but if you do, what is this all about? And, and, and what do I need to do? And will you help me? I'm scared. <laughs> A whole host of different exclamations that came out of different people who found themselves really shaken to the core. I'm delighted that I'm a Baha'i, and then in being a Baha'i, I consider myself everything. I am Christian, I am Buddhist, I am Muslim, I am a Zoroastrian, I am a Jew, I am, if I left anything out, I uh, forgive me, <laughs> I'm a Babi, I'm a Baha'i. Although I am delighted in that, I still feel a sense of deep urgency and duty to strive to not only connect to an authentic path of servitude that I need and want to be on, but also to be a voice that might remind or invite people to listen to that call from the heart that says, keep searching, keep finding what's true, keep going toward the beautiful things that are compelling you, keep moving toward the things that truly are good, Good is not relative. This is a good introduction into the next thing I want to talk about, and that is your works. I'd like you to describe for me your latest musical works. I have a few projects in the works right now. One is a compilation of holy writings from all the different traditions, which will be on one CD, and these are beautiful prayers that call us to the best way that we can possibly be while we're in this world serving humanity. So that's a wonderful project to be involved in. There are other projects. There's one that is geared more toward children that will be designed to nurture children in a way that keeps them connected to who they truly are and who they are truly becoming, that will hopefully be imbued with an essential quality of love and beauty and reminders that they are loved and that they are needed and that their gifts and qualities and beauties will bring such light and goodness to this world. I don't have the whole project worked out, but I have many songs written. I'd say the path that I'm really called to now is the path of authenticity, the path of relating with people without being masked in all the things that we're told we should be masked in. Or we're all walking around with these masks, trying to make them look like who someone else has told us we're supposed to be. And if we could just let it crumble, because it's very brittle and it takes an awful lot of energy to hold it up constantly, and just be authentically who we are, then we naturally come back to our heartful spiritual qualities because in the quiet and peacefulness of our lives, we're naturally reminded of what's healthy and what's good. It's when we become overwhelmed and bombarded by the frenzy of the outer world that we lose touch with that quiet, beautiful voice that speaks to us of truths. Christina, what CDs have you produced? 
I have an album called Crimson Robe, which was produced by wonderful gentleman Louis Shelton, who produced all of Seals and Crofts stuff. You can download that on iTunes, or you can get it through CD Baby. And again, these are very uplifting songs. You don't have to be from any specific spiritual denomination to appreciate the positive message that comes through these songs. And then I have a CD whose title is He is the Healer. This is excerpts taken from a long healing prayer from the Baha'i Writings. This is a very beautiful, powerful prayer for healing that I'm told has been used in many hospices, massage practices, meditation practices, devotionals. And this was a gift to record. I was pregnant with my daughter. We recorded it in one take, live in one studio, which is not often done. You usually have the pianist and the guitarist in one room and the singer in another isolated room. And we all sat together in the room and recorded this one time through and ended with hearts open and tears in our eyes. And There's a certain magic to that CD that's certainly beyond me. <laughs> so I won't take credit for that. <laughs> so I have those two CDs, and I have a lot of other music that I have not put on CDs yet. So I have a lot of things in the works that I hope to have printed before long. But the thing that I'm most interested in doing right now is being a voice that reminds us to investigate what true religion is. Religion, the way most people speak of it nowadays, is not at all what religion is. Religion is something of incredible beauty, incredible wisdom. It is a heavenly invitation that is calling us to strive and suffer through many challenges to shave off the immaturities and ignorance that we come into the world with and to bloom into extraordinary beings of love and service and to forget wearing the mask of spirituality because it just doesn't do anything to actually live in the heart of spirituality and to experience the incredible joy of that. I think there's a lot of exhaustion in carrying around the mask of religion or the mask of spirituality, and inevitably that's what causes the, the arguments and the separations and the fights. But if you drop down to the essentials of any teaching of any world religion, it will teach you to be generous. There's a beautiful Baha'i prayer for peace. One of my absolute favorite prayers goes like this. Be generous in prosperity and thankful in adversity. Be fair in judgment and guarded in thy speech. Be a lamp unto those who walk in darkness and a home to the stranger. Be eyes to the blind and a guiding light unto the feet of the erring. Be a breath of life to the body of humankind, a dew to the soil of the human heart and a fruit upon the tree of humility. There was a time in my life when I had a practice of meditation before I embraced the Baha'i faith, before I really knew what it was, a Buddhist type of meditation called Vipassana, where you focus on the breathing. What it's designed to do is quiet the mind 
and bring it to a single point. Because if we take even five minutes to survey what's going on in our minds at, at any point in the day, you can be sure that for the most part there are hundreds of voices going off telling us what we should have done, what we could have done, what we must do, how we should have said something, how awfully we did that, how wonderfully we did that. We're rehearsing our anger or lamenting our dramas. And with such a cacophony of voices going off so constantly, there is no room for the beauties of our hearts and our spirits to speak to us. There's no window through which the higher mysteries of life can inform us. And so I'm reflecting in my own life now how grateful I am to remember that meditation is such a gift. And even if you've never done it before, if one were to start a practice of of five or ten minutes a day to start quieting that mind, quieting what, what the Buddhists called monkey mind, there are extraordinary things that happen. Even quantum physicists can, can measure what happens in the brain when the two hemispheres become synchronized and the activities become attuned. There's a beautiful writing of Abdul Baha's, the, the son of Baha'u'llah, where he says, meditation is the key for opening the doors of mysteries. In that state, man abstracts himself. In that state, man withdraws himself from all outside objects. In that subjective mood, he is immersed in the ocean of spiritual life and can unfold the secrets of things in themselves. The faculty of meditation frees man from the animal nature, discerns the reality of things, puts man in touch with God. This, I think, is a beautiful thing to consider. If my friends were to say, how do you think I should start my spiritual practice? Or, I'm already on a path, but I'm kind of distracted by life. What what do you think I should do? Because I want to get back to some meaningful truth and some authenticity in in my life. I would say, begin meditating. And don't stop. Because it's through that practice that the doors open and that these mysteries come and inform us of the things that we were created to be informed of. I found this book by a woman called Cordelia Norder mm-hmm. called The Eternal Voice. I love this woman. I love this little book. It is out of print now, but it gives the progression that all the revelations were born in. It even gives the lineage of how certain of the manifestations are descendants of Abraham. Even more than that, Cordelia Norder touches on this concept that I have never heard articulated in this way before. And she may have drawn it from another source, I don't know. She didn't attribute it to another source, so I'll just say it's from her book, The Eternal Voice. She says that each of the religions was born in a very specific place on the planet and was able to spread out into certain regions to varying degrees and were able to cross continents at certain points to varying degrees. But for the most part, each of those religions stayed concentrated to those very areas that they were born in. And you can see how Christianity permeated Europe, 
and how Buddhism permeated parts of Asia, and how Islam faith permeated the Middle East. And again, they did journey out beyond certain reaches, but only to a point. And that this is the first time in history that a revelation can reach humanity throughout the world, across the whole globe. It is the first time that when we say these very words of Baha'u'llah, the earth is but one country and mankind its citizens, that we can experience that and know it to be true. It is the first time that we are ready to be united. So this is the day that all the other religions foretold, when the tenth avatar would come, the Kaim, the the return of Christ, the Buddha Maitreya, Buddha of Universal Fellowship, I think was one of the names they gave him. And each of these religions point to a time when this one would come and unite all the peoples of the world and speak a truth that we would recognize and that would unite and harmonize our hearts. And here we are at this very, very exciting time in history when so much of humanity around the globe, no matter what religion they've been a part of, they know it to be true. They know we are one family. Mm. They know that, in essence, it is one path to God. Mm. And, and they know the joy of loving each other. And this is incredibly exciting. Yeah. <laughs> I just love that. If you can get your hands on this book, it's so fun. She spells out each of the prophecies in each of the different religions. And then she ties it up with the fulfillment of this day, the Baha'i reality, the ocean of light that we are all immersed in, and the time that we have come to, that this is the time of maturity for humanity. And so we must strive to become mature. And this is an incredible blessing that we have access to being mature souls on this planet, and how is each of us going to strive to the highest level of maturity that we can reach. This is a task. This is a wonderful task. (laughs) Exciting and challenging. Christina, thank you so much for sharing your story and your perspective. Thank you for inviting me. I hope you enjoyed that interview with Christina Frith Quinn, a Baha'i musical artist whose CDs include Crimson Robe and He is the Healer. After the end of the program, I will play an excerpt from Christina's CD, He is the Healer, which she was able to record in one take. For a copy of this and other programs, you can go to the website www.abahaiperspective.com. For information specifically on the Baha'i faith, you can go to the website www.baha'i.org, or you can call the toll-free number 1-800-22-UNITE. I hope you'll join me next time on a Baha'i perspective.
This is WXOJLP Northampton, 103.3 FM, your Valley Free Radio station, streaming at www.valleyfreeradio.org.